morning we are starting a new book uh, study, a new sermon series on the book of Judges. Now, whenever y'all think of Judges, what comes to mind? Or maybe a better question is, who comes to mind? I just want you to think about Judges. Now, y'all be honest with me right here. When you heard of this, how many of y'all immediately thought of Judge Judy? Anybody? I see some hands. And if you didn't say yes right now, I don't believe you. I think Judge Judy is the first one that comes to mind. You might maybe have maybe a more respectful view of judges. And so maybe you think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a great trailblazer. You may not agree with all of her positions, but she was a great woman who, who pushed forward equality for women. Got no problem with her. But my favorite judge is Amy Coney Barrett. Now, the reason I love this lady is... Not because she was appointed by any particular person, but anybody who shows up to a Supreme Court hearing to, to be seated without any notes at all, that's a bad lady right there. Like a bad in a good way. She is somebody fierce. I want her on my side. I love that lady. I mean, showed up with a blank tablet being like, this is all I got. I don't need my notes. I know everything. I, I, don't, know. I don't know how she does it. She got my utmost respect. One of the most viral sensations whenever it comes to judges today is Frank uh, Caprio. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. He's 84 years old. He's a district judge in Rhode Island. He's all over YouTube because of his grace and compassion and his kindness really to young people and to working people. He just gives a lot of grace uh, the first time, and he, he's just a great guy. But as we get into the book of Judges, we're going to look at today some of the, the founding understandings of the book of Judges in chapter 1. But throughout the summer, we're just going to walk through this book. The way this sermon series kind of came about is at the beginning of the year, Clay and I were starting our daily devotionals on the way to school. I always do a Devo with them. And it's on my phone through the Bible app. And we just started with the book of Judges. They have these series for kids. And I loved it. And I was like, we need to look at this and so here we are looking at this a little bit later whenever I've had more time to study and understand. And it's a great book filled with great stories. It's very entertaining. It's also kind of gruesome. But the whole thing about the book of Judges is it shows the tendency that we have to struggle with sin, uh, the, the lure of sin, how it pulls us away from God and just some of the things that are involved with that. And so as we look at the cycles of sin and God's people, my hope for you and for me, for all of us, is that we can understand our own nature and our own sin struggle better so we can better live for God. Now, today, Judges chapter 1, we're going to look at this half-hearted conquest of the people of God to give you an understanding of what had taken place. Joshua had died, and after he died, the people were without a king. They, they didn't have leadership. And so they're kind of all going their own way. And as we pick up in Judges chapter 1, you can see this. It says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? See, they were called to go into the promised land, which was inhabited by the Canaanites, and to overtake them, to take possession of their land. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hands. Now, the reason that the people inquired of the Lord is they didn't have any leader. And we see this throughout the book of Judges. In fact, there's one verse that is repeated four different times. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right 
in his own eyes, just by a show of hands. How many of y'all think that is applicable today? How many of y'all look at our society and our culture, the people, and everybody does what is right in their own eyes? Well, that is what we see in the book of Judges. Now, the scope is from the death of Joshua to the coronation of Saul. And so we're talking about 300 to 350 years where these judges ruled the land. And so you can look, and there's a lot of different aspects in here. There's a lot of power in the text. Uh, We can see how different judges came in and overtook different areas. But there's a cycle of misery that correlates with the cycle of sin in their life. And and we'll get into more of that later. But the thing that we need to understand about the judges specifically is that they were civil leaders that God had appointed to bring about repentance and fellowship with God. So the judges were not like Judge Judy or Amy Coney Barrett or the local magistrate. They didn't wear gowns and a a gavel. They were people who were military leaders. They were more of tribal leaders than they were just political leaders. And so a lot of times when we think of judges, we think of Gideon because he was one of the judges. I think the most famous judge that we think of is Samson. He was a mighty man of valor. And one of the things that all these judges have in common is that apart from God, they were sinful. And you can see as we get into the book of Judges that they just kind of get worse and worse and worse. The good news for that is if God can use somebody like Samson, I promise he can use somebody like you and me. They continue to get worse in their scope. But what we see is their effectiveness didn't come from who they were or who they knew or where they were raised or where they were born. Their power came from the Holy Spirit. And we'll see this over and over that as the Spirit came upon the judges, they were able to act with power. And so they were tasked to bring about repentance, fellowship with God, and deliverance. The judges delivered They're people, and they're not all male. I like this. Deborah is a judge. She was a mighty judge. She did some great things. Uh, Her story is unique. Uh, We're going to enjoy that one when we get to it. But Gideon, who started out a coward, he did great things, and he ended his life far from God. Did not do great things throughout his life. But you'll see just kind of like this uh, degrading of leadership that, that happened, how they just got worse and worse and worse, and the people of God. And here's the thing that's so important. The people of God were called by God to overtake a land. They were called to possess the land that God had given them. So building up to the book of Judges, you have the Exodus, not just the Exodus, but you have the wandering in the wilderness, and they have crossed over into the promised land. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a list of things that the people are to do so that they can live for God. That's where the Shema comes from. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you are to teach your children to do these things. You're to diligently teach your children to do these things, right? The the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua is a picture of how we are to live for God. And Judges is how the people responded to the commands of God. I want to give you foreshadowing. They did not do a good job. They did not do a good job at all. But we can see in verses 3 through 21 that they got part of it right. And this is exciting whenever you think about it. So verse 3 says, And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. 
So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up to, and Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek, and Bezek fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and Perizzites. As it continues, verse 8, it says, And then the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, and they defeated Sishi and Ammon and Talmi. Now, all these things are kind of pointing to them being faithful to do that which God called them to do. They were to go into the land of Canaan. They were to drive out all the people who lived there and drive out all their foreign gods. Now, I want you to understand what this means. This was not that they were like, okay, this is our house now, y'all leave. It was their job to go in and say, this is our land God has given to us and to commit the people to complete and total destruction. That means that nobody was to be left living. God had called them to rid out all the foreign people, all the foreign gods, all the foreigners that would distract them from living for him. This is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, a few other places, but this one's real clear. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, verse 2, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them giving them your daughters or sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. What God is telling his people is that as you enter into a foreign land, anything that will pull you from me, anything that will distract you from God, anything that will compete with God, I want you to drive it far from you. I want you to commit those things to complete destruction. I want you to understand this. If you're young, if you're thinking about getting, I don't care if you're old and you're thinking about getting married or remarried. If you marry someone that doesn't share the values from God, God's word tells you that they will pull you far from God. If you enter into a land and you try to accommodate in your lifestyle something that is far from God, that disagrees with God, whatever it is, those things will contaminate your life and pull you away from God. What God was telling his people is, I want you to be holy as I am holy. I want you to be set apart as I am set apart. I want you to be focused on living for me, not accommodating things of this world. Please hear me. What was true for the people of Israel then is true for the people of God today. And look at verse 8. He says, because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why should you set yourself apart from the world? Why should you not accommodate things of the world? Because the Lord your God told you to, and the Lord your God loves you, and he wants the best for you. He did it for the protection of his people, and God still calls us to be set apart for the protection of his 
people. Think about it this way. Soon and very soon, I hope and pray that we possess our land, right? How many of y'all think it would be wise if we went over there and like, all right, this is where we want our building, but we're not going to clear the brush. We're not going to level the ground. We're not going to build a foundation. We're just going to start building as it is where we want our stuff to go. How many of y'all think that building would last? Of course not. The, the walls would begin to cave in. The, the, the stability of the building would not last. It would be a temporary structure at best and a total waste of our money. In order to set a way of living that will endure, you have to clear the debris. You have to start with a clean slate. You have to be clean. It goes with building a building, and it goes with building a life that is pleasing to God. Please hear me. God wants you and me to avoid moral corruption. God wants you and me to avoid false gods. God's whole motivation for his people was that they would live holy and pleasing lives for him. He wasn't trying to, to like accommodate. He wasn't trying to, to blend in. He was there because he wanted his people to live the best life they possibly could. Do you know what God wants for you? God wants you to live holy and set apart lives. He doesn't want you to accommodate sin. He doesn't want you to look around at what's happening in the world and say, okay, just pat everybody on the back and say, and chant, God is love, God is love, God is love. He wants us to be wholly set apart and different. And as a church, as a people of God, it is not our job to make people feel good about their sin. It is not our job to celebrate waywardness. It is our job to live by the word of God. Many of y'all know, June 1st, our city made this proclamation that it was going, for the first time in the history of the city of Rowlett, that the month of June would be Gay Pride Month. Now, I got called upon and I answered the call. I felt like it's what I should do to stand up to city council. And in as nice and polite of a way to say, I, I don't believe this represents the values of our city. I don't think we're, we're, we're to endorse a lifestyle that contradicts Scripture. And if you're curious, nowhere in Scripture does it say that homosexuality is not a sin. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you can choose to live and do whatever you want. God doesn't call the church to do that. Now, I understand the city does not share the values of the church. But I believe the majority of people in our city do identify with Christ. And so because of that, I spoke for biblical values. Now, I've been crucified on Facebook, which is fine, uh, because what those people don't understand is none of that bothers me. I could care less what people think about me because I don't need their approval to live a life that I find pleasing to God. In fact, their hatred... And, and, and the attacks that I've been getting kind of encourage me because I feel like if, if people aren't attacking me, maybe there's nothing in my life that's godly. And, and that might be backwards for some, but there have been a few people who have been, I would say, polite and kind, and they wanted to share their opinion with me. One of my favorite statements is that, Cole, you just need to respect the separation of church and state. And I want you to understand this. 
I'm not mad at anybody. Like, I think Tammy is acting according to Tammy's values, the, the mayor of our city. I'm not mad at her. She's doing what I expect her to do. I don't expect the world to endorse my religious beliefs. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand how, how I think my role and our role as the church is to make sure we don't accommodate sin, endorse sin with our silence, or act like everything's okay. So I want to read my response to this person named Sonny who sent me a message telling me how I needed to respect separation of church and state. I said, Sonny, Thank you for expressing your thoughts in a kind way. So separation of church and state was established first to ensure that a state-run church was never enacted. I don't think we should ever force anybody to go to church. Second, freedom of religion, the separation of church and state, was established to ensure freedom of religion and the expression of one's religion was maintained. As a Christian, I believe our, our civil government is accountable to God to do good and to act with justice and righteousness. The church's responsibility with regard to civil government is to make sure that the state does not lose sight of the truth that God rules and there is a moral standard by which the political realm must operate. A biblical church is to exercise a prophetic role of being a voice for God and his righteous standards. These are my beliefs, and I'm not upset that people have differing views. My worldview is framed from the Bible, and I am grateful that separation of church and state ensures that my voice is heard. Whenever you think about our role, our role is not to condemn any group. We have no place of condemnation, and the reality is we all stand condemned, but by the grace of God. But biblical convictions are to be voiced by the church, knowing that biblical convictions are not popular. But I'm going to stand by biblical convictions. I can do no other. I'm not going to sit by and hope that our culture figures out that if we don't live according to God's standards, then we're headed for utter demise. I'm going to be a voice of Scripture. I'm not going to be mad about it. I'm not going to be angry. I don't hate anybody. All are made in God's image. I don't care if you're gay, straight, lesbian, queer, transgender, bi, or whatever other acronym you want to call. Everybody is made in God's image. All are to be loved and respected. And sin is to never be celebrated. Throughout this whole thing, the, the thing that has really bothered me the most is not so much that people live in a lifestyle separate from biblical values. Like, I expect people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, who have not received him as their personal Lord and Savior, to live as people who don't have God as their moral compass. Like, that's the expectation I have for them. I expect them to hate me. It, living out John 15, right? They will hate me because you love me. In the same way they have hated Jesus, they will hate you. Like, I expect that. But the thing that, that is so weird for me is why do they care what I think? Like, why does it bother them that I think their lifestyle is sinful? That the LGBTQT plus LMNOP lifestyle is, is Like, why do they care? Because at the end of the day, I don't care what they think about me. Their words don't hurt me, they empower me. And, and I, I get that's backwards. 
but then it hit me. Men, women, how many of y'all have ever gotten dressed? Like you're looking in the mirror, you're like, I don't think this looks right. You know what I'm talking Any of y'all ever done that? And maybe you go to your spouse or a child and you're like, do these jeans make me look fat? And your spouse looks at you and says, it's not the jeans that make you look fat. Any of y'all, don't say that, by the way. Don't, don't say that, by the way. Any of y'all ever been like, do these shoes look okay with this outfit? Do you want to know why you ask? Because you know those jeans make you look fat, right? You know those shoes don't look right. And what you want is affirmation for something that you know is off. And I know that anybody who's watching this that is LGBTQT plus or whatever is going to hate this. But the reason that they want my affirmation is because they know that lifestyle is off. They know that there's something wrong with it, that there's something inside of them that, that, that is creating a tension within their heart and life, and they want someone who believes the Bible to say, it's okay, you just do you. But the truth of the matter is that it's not right. No sexual perversion is right. That's why I don't think that the, the homosexual is any worse than the adulterer. The homosexual is no worse than the man or woman who has lust driving them. Or the person looking at straight pornography. It's all a perversion of God's word. We won't celebrate any of it. What God was saying is if you accommodate sinfulness in your life, it's going to pull you far from me. So don't intermarry with people who believe differently from you. Don't do life with those who live different. You can be kind. You can be a witness. You can be salt. You can be light. That was the job and the responsibility of the people of God to live holy, righteous, set apart so that people would see God and bring them into a relationship with God. Israel missed that part, by the way. But what we see is even though the command was clear to drive out foreign gods, foreign people from their land, they had a canceled conquest. They were half-hearted in their devotion towards God. As we look at verse 27, it says, Manash did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashin and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew stronger, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. I don't know if you can read what happened, but the task was hard, and the people of God only did it halfway. They went in and took over, but they didn't do the part that in their mind maybe they didn't understand. You can see here at the end of verse 28, they looked and instead of doing things God's way, what they did in that moment was they were like, you know what? These people could actually help us. These people 
could, could, we, we can have them plow our fields. We could, we could have them build our buildings. Instead of doing things God's way, they justified living according to their own thing. But it wasn't just uh, mannish. As we look at verse 29, it says, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants that lived in Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshem or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. As you look at this, time and time and time again, even though they were commanded to drive out everyone and to commit everybody to complete desolation, they just stopped short. They were enticed by the lure of sin to go their own way, to do their own thing, to follow God when it was easy and comfortable, when it benefited them, but whenever it kind of pushed the boundaries of what they knew and understood and could comprehend, they just stopped. And because of it, they fell into the cycle of repeated sin. Because Israel did not follow God, they're still dealing with the consequences today. The consequences of disobedience. Can I, can I tell you, there are a lot of times when God calls us to live for him, and we do part, but not full. Look at this passage in, our, in James chapter 114. It says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. When we are partially obedient, we need to understand in our heart we are totally disobedient. And disobedience comes with discipline. This is the cycle that we see in the book of Judges, this cycle of sin. People would go their own way, do their own thing. And as they lived a life according to their own will and their own thought process, their sin led to their personal destruction in their homes, their destruction economically, politically, Destruction of their lives, and as they were facing the consequences of their actions, they felt the oppression of their sin, and the oppression of the sin, the consequences of their action, the discipline of God, made them realize, I'm not living for God. The reason my life is terrible is because I'm trying to do things on my own, and they would repent, and as they would repent, they would be delivered from their trials, their troubles, their tri tribulations, they would enter into a time of peace. As things were good in their life, they would fade away from God. Maybe you understand this. Maybe you have a great life. God gives you a lake house. God gives you land. You go, you, you kind of enjoy the lake on weekends, and then you kind of realize, you know what? I like the lake. I can worship on the lake. I like the lake. I can do that. I don't need the church. I am the church. You fade from God. You don't have fellowship with one another. You kind of do your own thing. You look at your family life, maybe your children, the way that they're raised, the way that they're living, and you're like, what is going on with my family? I don't feel like my priorities are right. I don't understand. My life is in shambles. You look up and you're like, oh, I forgot about God. God, please forgive me. You repent. You turn from whatever sinfulness is pulling you away from you. And you feel that, hey, God is delivering me. He's bringing my life back. Things are good. You experience peace. 
in your peace, you forget about God, and then you fall into a different snare, a different sin. Your life falls apart. You remember God in that discipline, and you're like, oh, yeah, God, I'm sorry. I promise I'll never do it again. God delivers you. You have peace. You forget about God. You fall into sin. This cycle repeated over and over in the book of Judges, repeated over and over by the people of God, repeated over and over even by Christians today. The good news, God is faithful and repentance brings about deliverance. When we repent, God is faithful and just to hear our cries for help. He is faithful and just to save us from all our iniquities. He is loving. He is kind. He is merciful. Please hear me. We love God as loving. We celebrate God as kind and he is merciful. In the same breath and in the same manner, God is also just. He is righteous, and he is wrath. And because he loves us, he brings discipline. Because he is kind, he brings about correction. We live in a world of people who do not believe in God. Their fruit does not display any knowledge of God, but they want to proclaim God is love, God is love, God is love. Some Christians want to elevate love above all the other characteristics of God. But please hear me in this. In heaven, the angels are not singing, God is love, God is love, God is love, God is righteous, God is righteous. It's kind of like that, but, but they're not even saying God is kind, God is merciful. In heaven, as the angels look upon God Almighty, throughout Scripture we see this, that the angels are proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. They establish the fact that God is set apart, that he is different. And Jesus told us, be holy as I am holy. He doesn't say be accommodating. He doesn't say just love everybody all the time and everything will be okay. He says, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart. Be different. Live uniquely for God in a world that denies God with their actions. The world, people outside of biblical values and a biblical worldview will try to entice you. They will try and pull you away from God. They will try and explain to you why the Bible doesn't mean what it says in black and white. They want you to fall hook line, and sinker into the lies of our enemies. But please hear me in this. Jesus bore the wrath of God. Jesus, who was righteous, pure, and holy, took on all of our sin. He died in our place. And in dying in our place, he offers us new life. He is the ultimate judge. He is the deliverer. And as a people of God, we have got to make sure that we live for him regardless of what the world thinks. We must be committed to God above 
all else.